This is Boom Goddess Radio, igniting inspiration in primetime women. We are Jennifer Davis-Page, Bebe Peters, and Dr. Andrea Gould. And here we are talking about an amazing woman by the name of Diane Reed. I would love my life as a teachable lesson to be that there is grace on the other side of bad things that happen. Mm -hmm. That we can't run away from the bad things, but we are that grace. What a gracious woman with amazing history and a horrendous set of circumstances with a most incredible outcome. We want to listen to this with a curiosity mindset, one that allows us to tune into Diane's pre-traumatic personality. While all circumstances differ in the creation of trauma, there are some very important distinctions that contribute to thriving afterwards or succumbing to a lengthy and distressed victimhood. And as you listen deeply to Diane's voice, keep in mind the kind of personality that contains spirit, mindfulness, compassion, and the magic of nurturing relationships. And because of her sense of empathy in community, her ability to sense a positive future. But above all, listen to her grace. When I listen to Diane Reed's voice, her personality shines through as she recounts the traumatic and traumatic turning point in her life. When we first met Diane, she told us the story of how she arrived in Kobar and about the job offer that her husband Owen received. Diane was so willing to go along on this journey because she had spent time in her growing up years traveling the world with a father who was in the foreign service. And so she was ready to join her husband in this new chapter of life. After a 16-hour flight from New York to Saudi Arabia on, at that time, one of the largest airlines in the world, Transworld Airlines, probably one of their last trips on that airline, well, they landed in Saudi Arabia and got themselves located in their beautiful community, found a beautiful home there. They then became a really important part of a very supportive multicultural community with Diane teaching and Owen working nearby. We asked Diane to tell us about the fateful day that changed their lives forever. Memorial Day on May 29th, and as we do, we get up early, and my husband had gone. He was getting ready to go to the office, say goodbye to him, and got, you know, as you do at the beginning of the week, you think, oh, I do, I need to get back into this habit of, you know, kind of working out, that's good for me. I just spent a lovely weekend with my husband knowing that I was gonna be leaving in another week to go be with my family, but missing him. I, I got up and uh, got dressed and ran over to the gym, which wasn't far. And so I finished my workout, still had my soccer shorts, my t-shirt and my water bottle and towel and went upstairs getting ready to uh, take a shower and go to the meeting and I got a phone call and it was a friend of mine and I think that was the first kind of God wink in a way, kind of 
preparing me or protecting me because it was Connie and she said oh what are you doing and I said well I'm getting ready to jump in the shower and um, go to that meeting uh, and then meet you and the girls for lunch and she said oh we're not going there's been a terrible shooting in another location within the city of Kobar mm -hmm. and so I said well okay and as a community I said I'll find out from Owen what's going on and we'll connect later and that's what you do and I think it's wonderful in overseas communities and in the compound itself but also in the city there were amazing people within our community Saudis international people that just loved us and wanted the best for the whole community and so I knew we weren't prepared for this the community wasn't prepared for this and I got on the phone real quickly with my husband and told him what was happening and we were very close to the um, people at the US consulate and he was going to find out for sure what was going on and then contact me call me back and just within those moments I could hear the bullets flying um, and mm -hmm. I was looking at my cat and you know animals have a certain look and both of us kind of made eye contact and I remember taking the towel and walking down the steps our mar marble steps and I saw my front door on fire and I thought well this isn't good and I walked downstairs and I remember put it, taking that water bottle putting the fire out and then walking to the kitchen and I could see bullet holes in the dining room. I thought, okay, they're here, whoever they are. I went to the phone, um, to the office downstairs, and I called my husband, and I said, they're here. And he said, okay. He said, you, honey, they're in the back room, there were no windows. So he was trying to think of places for me to locate until they could figure out what's going on. And he said, look at, look at your gut, whatever your instincts tell you. And I remember, you know, having that brief moment where I was looking out the kitchen window into my patio and I thought, I can't stay here. I don't want to be a prisoner or hostage and I need to check on kids. We had a daycare within that compound. So my thoughts were kind of what was going on. It really wasn't about me and though I thought I need to protect myself, but it was tied up in all of the strong men and women in my life. and people in the community that it cared, cared about me, wherever it was, and, and my world family, who had given me that strength to know, you know, know who I was as a person, to know that I could handle whatever was going to come my way. I asked Diane what her moment-to-moment -moment thoughts were as she was coming down the stairs and she saw her front door on fire. You know, it was funny because I don't think I had fear. I think my sense at that time really was frustration. I thought, I don't know what's going on, but whoever's done this needs to stop. And maybe that was my teacher person, you know, that teacher within me to think, you know, I, I had no idea who was on the other side of the door, but I could hear someone kicking the door um, in. And, you know, the one thing I always did as security anyway, wherever I lived, I always had the key in and it was locked. And I think that a terrorist outside was so frustrated he couldn't get in the door. But what basically what I found later was they were shooting these kind of Molotov cocktails. They were trying to torch people out of their homes. Mm -hmm. And um, But he had, a, he had to work a little bit for me. When I looked out that window and I thought, you know, this is a decision. I can't go back. This is what I'm going to do. And so for me, it was about survival mode. It was about I had a job to do. Mm -hmm. And so I was really kind of concerned about my cat. 
Um, her name, oddly, was Peace. And so um, she was an Arabian male, and um, we had had her for the eight years. And so um, she was part of the family. And I remember they had already shot into the foyer. So what I did, I thought in my head, he's going to come in, and then I'm going to be going out the side door. And I locked the kitchen door, and I thought that would give my cat some more time to hide or get to where she needed to and then I left the door open going kind of from the kitchen to the patio. I remember opening the door to the garden gate and I just knew where the security gate was and where I was heading and he actually had his AK-47 aimed at the front door and when he saw me he just moved it and started shooting at me. And I guess I felt a little like G.I. Jane, kind of dodging bullets. And um, oddly enough, I almost got to where I needed to be. Up until this point in the conversation, I had assumed that G. had escaped that AK-47 and was running for safety. I remember thinking it's very much like in the movies. You don't really know, but you, can, you know you can't run anymore. But I knew enough to, the impact um, mostly felt on my hands and my knees to protect kind of the torso. And so when I um, then fell on the asphalt, almost to the security gate where I needed to be, I remember thinking, this isn't good, I'm busy, I, I don't have time for this. Here I have been shot and I don't have time. And I looked at him and I remember yelling, you idiot, I can't believe you just shot me. So I looked at him like I think I would as a teacher, as a parent, uh, you know, and just really sad to know that he was in this position. He, of course, when I exited, because I didn't know who was out there, I knew he was trying to get in, but I later found out there were four, four of these guys, and they were in the compound, I think, for 24 hours. But I, I tell everyone I got to leave early. And not by choice, but obviously, you know, it, you have to kind of look at things in a, in a positive way. And I thought, you know, I think the reason that I, I was felt so empowered at that moment was I thought, you know, you may be able to end my life here physically, from a physical standpoint, but you're not going to take anything from my spirit. I'm still who I am, and that's who I, I know who I, I know who I belong to. I knew who I was, and my faith... Uh, you know, when, when you become part of this international community uh, of people that love you and that you're giving back to, you care about people. And so my time, it was a defining moment for me, but it didn't define my experience in Saudi Arabia. Imagine yourself being in a situation where it's life-gripping and life-challenging, and yet have this wisdom to react in such a uh, cavalier, stoic almost, fearless way. Why is that? I would call it a transcendent way. I suspect that, that her being in shock didn't necessarily um, go along with a rational thought process, but rather what I'm calling a transcendent thought process, as if she's looking down at herself and her entire life landscape and feeling this connection, this compassion, this love, and, and her sense of spirituality. And you must be able to, you must need to practice that, right? Because you can't get to that state. So you have to prepare yourself for it. Let's talk about that very soon again. 
Welcome back to the second half of our conversation. I was curious about how Diane was able to manage the pain, this ultimate challenge to her survival. I thought, okay, this is bad. I can't run, you know, so I've got to look. I need to look at my injury to see how badly I was injured. And it was pretty devastating because uh, it was kind of like that Play-Doh set you get, you know, or a shark attack. There was no tissue, and I had a compound fracture of the tibia. My fibula was destroyed. So it was basically I had a job, and my job was to get myself to the hospital. And later the doctors were... Uh, he was an amazing South African doctor, and he had spent 15 years in Johannesburg at the largest gunshot wound hospital there. And he said, I've never seen anything like you in all of my 15 years. And he said, for you to be conscious during this whole thing, but, like, you know, this is pretty funny, but I did crawl. It was like one of those I Love Lucy moments mm -hmm. where you crawl and I thought I'm going to reach up and open the door and then I'm going to get myself in where the cameras were and they could see that I'm badly injured because we had security people all around too. It was a large compound. But I got myself over there, open, you know, reached for the door and it was locked. And I thought, oh my. And so I thought, you know, that's when I had my moment with God and I said, you know, I really don't want to end up, there's more for me to do. And I didn't think about my financial status or you know I thought what came to mind were family were relationships within that community and I thought I'm not done yet you know and so you think about for me it was Psalms 23 it was that sense of being there and being calm and I thought I don't have enough energy to crawl around to the other side but I said God you've got to help me out of this and as soon as I had that moment I looked up and there was my neighbor who was a Dutch nurse and she came around on her bicycle, and she, I, I, she couldn't believe it. She said, I had so much control. And she said, you had to tell me what to do. I really thought you were gone. And so she went around, dragged me into the building, and we used one of the scarves that were left in that building as a tourniquet. Mm -hmm. And that bought me the time that I needed. And um, ambulance came into the hospital, and... At that time, I remember, too, that the, a guard came, and he said, it's okay, an ambulance is coming. He wasn't armed. And I said, I need to call my husband. And so he said, okay, no problem. And um, I said, you know, 050-548-3686. I still knew that. I still know the number. And I said, hi, honey, I, you need to meet me at the hospital. I've been shot. And um, he's like, okay. But I was so calm. My husband, being from Texas, he has been known to hunt. And um, he really thought, the way I sounded, it was like a graze and all. And so the next thing I knew, the ambulance came. And they it was right out of an episode of ER. And the EMT had me in the, by the ambulance. And he was saying, Diane, stay with me. And I thought to myself, where else would I be going? <laughs> I'm in this ambulance. But little did I know, I had lost so much blood at that point. Was still conscious. Got into the hospital. There was a whole crew waiting for us. Um, and this doctor, who looked like he was 12, calling my name and saying, Diane, it's okay. I need you to stick out your tongue. And I kept 
thinking, okay, I'm going to die in the hospital. It's not my tongue. It's my leg. It's my leg. And Dr. Berger was amazing. And he said, he said to me later, he said, do you know why I asked you to stick out your tongue? Why I needed to see that? He said, that was the only way we could determine your circulation. Mm -hmm. He said, you were as white as your hair. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, and then they were saying, I heard them say type and cross match, knew my blood type. And the only sad situation was when the nurse was preparing me. They had to give me some blood then in the hospital. And um, they were getting ready to take me to theater. And that's the terminology that they use there. And my nurse came over to cut my soccer shorts off because she was getting me ready. And I said, no, don't do that. And she said, what do you mean don't do that? And I said, I just broke them in. I could probably do an ad for Nike, but anyway, they, they were amazing. But she did let me take my t-shirt off, and she saved that for me, and that's where I, that I trained in that shirt for the Dubai Marathon. That ends the part of the story about the attack. Sometimes in order to heal the wounds in our own hearts and in our spirit, we need to create something that includes the elements of the tragedy. Diane does this by running marathons. I thought, you know, I need to honor um, people that had lost their lives in that attack, but also it's a way of moving forward within the community. It was life-changing for me because it really got me to the point where, you know, every mile that I ran was honoring those that couldn't and being grateful and really thankful for what I had at that moment and how I can transcend that, how, how I give that as a gift to other people. I would love my life as a teachable lesson to be that there is grace on the other side of bad things that happen. Mm-hmm. That we can't run away from the bad things, but we are that grace. I've had the benefit of hearing hundreds of life stories over the years, and with that, the qualities that are present in those who survive and live well versus those who survive but are already forever internally tortured and thus alienated from healing. And what are some of the things that we can take away from this story? Well, there are so many, like an infinite uh, number, but they for sure include summoning our courage do what your gut tells you to do. It's also about compassion and forgiveness and empathy. Also, there's that whole pre-traumatic personality. We can see Diane's resilience. We can see the love in her heart. We can see how she uses her reasoning and doesn't just think about herself in those kinds of situations. It's pretty amazing the kinds of things that we can go back and listen for in Diane's story. And there's something very precious about another takeaway, what is an actual token of this experience. Owen was able to find one of the bullets and the casing that encased that bullet. And Diane decided that she was going to make that into a piece of jewelry. And what she decided to put in the middle was a pearl. And the pearl is made out of nacre, which is the substance that's exuded by the oyster in response to it being harmed, hurt, or aggravated in some way. So now she has a beautiful piece of jewelry, this pearl right in the center of this bullet casing. 
she's transformed tragedy into a piece of art. Well, we were fortunate enough to have Diane send us a beautiful picture of the of the jewelry that was made from the pearl and the bullet. If you'd like to take a look at this magnificent piece, please go to our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and take a look. So how do we harness this life experience that we had the privilege of listening to and being inspired by? How do we bring the photo of this into our life? Dr. Andrea and Jennifer. I think it's so important that we recognize that we can prepare and we can rehearse. We can install survival software into our own minds, even beginning today. If we take a look at Diane, her belief system, we can hear it in her voice, her support system, which she honors in her story, those hold the elements for what we might pay attention to in terms of taking inventory on our preparedness for what life throws at us. One comment that she made early in her story was the fact that she did not want to be a hostage. And from everything that I've, I've heard from women that have been in situations not quite like that, but have been um, troubled or, or, or afraid, That was one thing they said, that they did not want to be taken to a second location because they knew if they were taken to a second location, their life would probably end. So I really, I think that women and men need to really understand that. And I I don't know if I would have had the courage that she had, but we all need to think about that very carefully. Don't be taken to a second location. And I think the word courage, right, that really has permeated throughout the entire discussion and interview that we had with her. Her courage was so immense and so overwhelming. I just love that idea. And she felt really that she was operating out of faith. She wasn't experiencing it necessarily out of courage, although she did say, I have a job to do and I have to I have to get myself to a hospital. That's my job. So that gives us a little window into the practical part. And what you're saying, Jennifer, might be part of the practical training for disaster preparedness. So we want to look at both sides. We want to look at the practical and we want to look at the spiritual preparedness, the psychological preparedness. She did a great job as a role model. Fantastic job. Kudos to Diane. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.